0: Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. I'm Laura Prowse with Cress Insurance Services. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Cress, we have been providing real estate, errors, and emissions insurance and risk management services to real estate agents and brokers for over 20 years. We believe that every agent and broker should have the tools to succeed. So we hope you find today's webinar of value. And just so you know, we do offer these monthly throughout the year. So please check your email and look for our email blasts. This morning, we're to have Attorney Renat Ehrlich of Manning & Cass talking about the risks that property managers face. We know it's tough out there. Renat is a partner with Manning and & Cass and she co-manages the firm's professional liability practice. She's also a real estate broker and a legal malpractice specialist and has defended many professionally in broker and property management and escrow. Renate has been defending real estate professionals for more than 20 years. And in the last several years, she's actually been working very closely with CRESS. She puts on risk management seminars for us, um, also writes articles, and assists with risk management in general. So without any further ado, I'm going to have Renat speak for a minute, and then I'll jump back in with some housekeeping items. Renat, if you want to give a welcome to everyone, that would be great.
1: Hi, everyone. Thanks for uh, taking the time to listen to me as Laura mentioned, I am a trial attorney. So what I do most of the days is I'm in trial or getting ready for trial. And the reason that I wanted to talk about property managers is because I happened to defend a lot of property managers. I uh, have not only tried cases, I'm also involved with the cases when they go on appeal. And I could talk a little bit about that as well. We could talk. I could talk about uh, how California is in terms of Evaluating uh, property managers and, and so forth. So, I'll, I'll try to fit it all in 30 minutes, but if anybody has any additional questions, this is the first slide and it has my contact information. Feel free to email me, and this is my picture so you can imagine how I look like. Laura, back to you. So, before we get started, just
0: a few housekeeping items. Um, we are going to do a QA at the end. So you- You'll see a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Feel free to type in your question as, a, as the webinar proceeds, and I will read them to Renat at the very end. So Renat, off
1: to you. Okay, so just to tell you how committed I am, I'm actually in the middle of a mediation on a lease dispute involving a commercial property around LAX, and I went into a separate conference room just to give this presentation. So. Seriously, property managers have a lot of risk. Now, if you're expecting this presentation to be sort of what to do as a property manager in terms of how to manage the property so you're not in the right webinar because I'm not an unlawful detainer attorney and I'm not gonna talk to you about um, specific forms and tenants' rights and so forth. What my goal is for you just to understand the risks because every slide that we're gonna go through has been one of my lawsuits. So I want you to understand the risks, and I don't want you necessarily to change how you practice, I just want you to understand the significance of what you do or what you don't do when you do practice as a property manager. So the first question in my mind is, are you even a property manager? I've had numerous cases where a real estate agent lists a property, sells a property, and then the buyer says, hey, uh, can you manage it for me? I'm not ready yet uh, to move in. Now, that would be a typical case, and the real estate agent now understands they're entering into a management agreement. But sometimes the relationship is a lot more subtle. Sometimes the buyer says, hey, you know what? I'm not ready to move in can you just list it for lease for me? Now the agent thinks he's a listing agent for a lease, not even thinking property manager. Then a tenant comes in, the tenant doesn't have a broker representing them, and the listing agent now writes the lease. So now they're taking a position as a fiduciary to the tenant as well. The tenant only knows the agent. They don't really know the owner. They have never dealt with the owner. A lease is created, the tenant moves in, and now they have their first issue. It's something happens, a leak or uh, bed bugs or whatever it is. And then what does the tenant do? The tenant calls the agent because the tenant only knows the agent. And now the tenant calls and speaks to the agent and says, hey, I have this issue. The agent being diligent con- uh, contacts the owner and says, hey, here's an email I got from the tenant. They have this issue. What do you want me to do? The owner responds, oh, I don't know any repair people. Could you just call somebody to go there and make the repair? And of course, the agent, again, trying to be helpful, says, sure, no problem. And then they call Joe Schmo to come in and do the repair. All this interaction makes this this agent potentially a property manager. Take it to the next step. The tenant uh, is late on making the payments. The owner calls the agent who leased the property and say, hey agent, can you do me a favor? The tenant is not paying rent, they're late. Can you go pick up the check? Or I'm out of town, can you have them deliver the check to you? Sure, no problem, I wanna be helpful. And now you're getting the money for the rent. Again, these scenarios are the most common that we see where an agent doesn't even realize that he or she are property managers. They do not have a contract between them and the owner that says what the various obligations are of the parties and and, and, what, and, and how much they're gonna get paid and, and how, and how to deal with things and so forth. So this is the most common situation. I don't know if the people that are on this webinar are just real estate agents that wanna get into property management or are people who manage portfolios of residential property, or manage portfolios of commercial properties. I will try to give tidbits on all those, just so it would respond to all of your potential interests. But again, feel free to contact me if you have more specific questions. So, uh, wait, I'm still on that. uh, Yeah. Okay. So, Um, what is the problem when a a tenant or a landlord think that you're a property manager and you think you are not? You don't realize that as a property manager, you owe duties. You mainly owe duties to the owner who you act on their behalf. But if you um, are also managing the property, there is case law that says that you might also owe a duty to the tenant. What do I mean by case law? So, In the legal profession, there are a lot of statutes that pertain to various industries, to real estate agents, property managers, and so forth. There's regulations. But what happens is a case gets litigated, a party is unhappy, and then it goes on appeal. When it goes on appeal, the Court of Appeal then decides uh, who wins, who loses. There's always one party that wins, one party that loses. And it issues a statement of decision, an opinion that opinion becomes law. So, whatever the issue you have as a professional, an attorney can't tell you right off the bat what the answer to that issue is. They would have to research what cases are out there that that sort of explain the statutes and so forth. So, um, still on the first issue, uh, to determine whether you're a property manager or not, case law has said that you have to look at the totality of the circumstances. You have to look at everything you did and the more you do as a property manager, the more you are a property manager, even if you do not have a contract. And um, I don't know, Laura, if you want to go back to that original slide, what I had on the right of that slide is basically all the places where you could potentially be, uh, uh, get, have a claim. So it could be the uh, department of real estate it could be a, a, a consumer claim. There are all kinds of different legal entities that uh, can make a claim against property managers. And mostly those claims will have to do with violation of the fair housing or violation of the American with Disability Act. So I do want to emphasize those two statutes and talk about them. So, um the american disability act is a federal statute you would think okay well if it's federal then does it really apply in the different states well yes it does it takes precedent and what the ada says is that it applies to public areas only so if you manage a commercial property then the parking lot would be at stake and any of the common areas if you manage A building then all the common or areas could be public uh, areas. It could be the pool, it could be uh, you know if you if there's a a little garden you know whatever it is that we have with um, with respect to public areas in a a residential property. Um, Obviously if you are just a property manager for a single family residence there are no public areas. So the likelihood is that the ADA will not apply to a single family. But like everything else with the law, there are exceptions. And I'll talk about that to the extent the time permits. Okay, now, um, an example to where the ADA will apply, I gave an example here of a parking lot. So you do have to have an assigned place for disabled tenants. If you um, have a specific, you don't, you don't have to have a specific place assigned to tenant number one, if they're disabled, you should have a spot that um, should be available to anybody who's disabled and has come to the property. And a, a disabled spot has to be wider than a regular spot. And I, I've defended many, many uh, property managers on those kind of claims where they manage a property and there isn't a designated parking spot for a disabled person. What is it that you really need to think of when you think about the ADA? Just think about accessibility. That's why I have that at the top of the slide. Because accessibility is the way of the law to make a property equally available and accessible to everybody. If it's not accessible, to a person who's in a wheelchair, like in my picture here, then obviously uh, you're treating that person uh, discriminatorily because you're not treating them the same as somebody who has legs and could hop on the stairs. So what other issues could be considered barriers? For example, if you have alarms that are flashing, um, you have to have lights because some people have uh, our difficulty of hearing. They can't uh, hear if it's just screaming. Uh, If you have narrow doors, it could be considered inaccessible for people with wheelchairs. Or it could be something simple like high drinking fountains and so forth. So, I'm not expecting you to become experts in this, in, in this from, from a 30-minute presentation about ADA, obviously. I just want you to think about the ADA as something that is out there. And I also want you to be cognizant that there are attorneys who specialize in suing uh, homeowner, I mean landowners and, and property managers for ADA violations. There are some issues with the statute as to uh, who has to pay the cost of converting it. To, to ADA accessible, so if your land, landlord buys a building that's uh, older, uh, from the 80s, obviously it, it's before the law was instituted, then it really depends. Um, sometimes the law would say that if it, the tenant would have to convert it if it's a significant cost, like if it's structural. So for example, uh, let's talk about a commercial property, you have a restaurant on it, the restaurant itself has to be ADA accessible, assume bathrooms. It's a public area. Bathrooms should be accessible. Well, who should convert the bathrooms to, to be accessible? Obviously the restaurant owner. However, however, this is very important. If the landlord is sued if, because a, a restaurant um, guest did not have accessible bathrooms, then um, that's permitted. so the, the the guest of the restaurant is not limited to only suing the tenant. They are uh, they can also sue the landlord. And what does that mean? Uh, that I don't know if you have um, access to the prior slide uh, you might have access to it in the future but it, it was a li- a slide about a lease. And what I mentioned there is when you're a property manager, you handle the lease you you either propose it or you, and you deliver it obviously you want to tell your your landlord your client that there are issues that they should be cognizant of and they may want to put it in the lease now by no means am i uh, means am i suggesting that you ever draft the lease r- draft clauses in the lease any revisions whatsoever i can't tell you how many cases i've had where my clients were blamed for drafting something improperly. You're not attorneys. You're not expected to be attorneys. And in fact, if you do attempt to draft something, you could be sued for acting as a lawyer without a license. But you do have to have that conversation with your client and say, look, I think there's some ADA issues. I'm not an ADA expert. Uh, I think you need to hire an ADA attorney to look at the lease and see what provisions should be there. For example, you might want to have the restaurant owner who's your tenant to have an indemnity to protect you and defend you if there's a lawsuit about ADA and you definitely want to potentially make them make those the, the restaurant ADA accessible. Okay, Laura, you can move to the next slide. Okay, I'll do it without hopefully screwing it up. Okay. So um, what do you have to do in terms of accommodation? We're still talking here about the ADA. You have to accommodate the tenants, but again, it has to be reasonable. Uh, And and obviously, you're you're just a property manager. It's not gonna be out of your pocket, but the owner needs to understand these are some of the things that they're gonna have to do. I have this little picture here that shows um, sign language, braille, wheelchair, hearing, eye. I mean, these are all the disabilities you're going to have to think of. There, there have been uh, new lawsuits, I would say, in the last six months about websites that are not accessible to certain disabilities. I don't know how large, again, if you're a large property manager, you might have a, a, a website that uh, advertises your services and so forth. There are rules with respect to websites and what they have to have as far as accessibility. You have to have their links where somebody who is a, like for example, if you have a video, so somebody who's hearing it uh, has difficulty hearing could be able to receive a translation or somebody who can see that they'll be able to um, hear and so forth. So these are things, again, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you how to create that website. I just want to give you an idea that that is an area of exposure and that I've seen lawsuits about that issue. Uh, I wrote here that this might include financial accommodation and I'll give you an example. Let's say a tenant is, um, is living off of some sort of disability payment and the disability payment comes in every month on the 8th, but their rent is due on the 1st you will have to accommodate that tenant so that they'll have, they'll be able to pay rent on the 8th. So again, the um, accommodation is going to have to be reasonable, but you're going to have to do it. Uh, You can move to the next slide. Okay, I have a special uh, slide for pets, simply because I have several uh, risk management hotlines that I manage and I get a lot of questions about pets. Unfortunately, pets are allowed under certain circumstances because an animal can be either a service animal, a guide animal, but where you get into the real gray area is being an emotional support animal. Everybody has emotional distress these days and everybody has issues and everybody needs their animal. The question is, and again, you, you look at case law to see what case law has said about this issue, is where do you draw the limit? There was a case, for example, where a tenant said, I want to have snakes, I'm attached to my snakes. Okay, well, if it's, a, if it's a, a, a snake that's poisonous, obviously it's dangerous, and you cannot danger other tenants, that is obvious. So I think in that situation, even if the tenant wants to argue that that's an emotional support animal, there would be an argument that it dangers other tenants. So again, it's, um. I can't tell you what the answer is because it, A, it depends on the circumstances, and B, it depends on what kind of law is out there with respect to the specific situation, specific animal, and so forth. Um, as far as um, the, asking the tenant for a certificate, again, um, it doesn't have to be from a medical professional. It could be, hey, I'm, I'm the professor of this, this student, and I know them. They, they, have a, uh, they had an a, a emotional breakdown and they really need this animal as a support and so forth. So it's really an issue where somebody could raise the, 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 the issue and then now you're faced with, okay, what do I do? The path of least resistance is just allow the animal in. I mean, that's really the easiest thing. So unless it's kind of a snake or a dog that bites or barks at all hours of the day and is a complete nuisance, then I think it's just simply easier to allow the animal. You have to be careful. Where you could get in trouble as a property manager is that usually the property manager is the one that makes these decisions because they interface with the tenant. So if you advertise a pet-free property or you talk to the tenant and you say you can't bring your animal then now the landlord may be sued, but they are sued because of something you have done on their behalf. This is where you can get in trouble because you're taking an action on behalf of, your, of the owner. Uh, in the perfect world, you may want to consult an attorney, but um, I don't know that people would do that, but definitely it's an issue. Uh, you can go to the next slide. Um, Okay, so another statute that comes up with respect to property managers is the Fair Housing Act. And the Fair Housing Act basically says that you can't discriminate. It's not exactly like the ADA because the ADA only talks about disability, where the Fair Housing Act talks actually about other protected classes. The protected classes are uh, sex, religion, national origin, obviously disability, so the question is now, what is it that you're doing that may pertain to one of those classes? Uh, I gave an example of Social Security because I had that come up. Social Security, you as a property manager, obviously you want to get the Social Security of the tenant because you want to check their, uh, their credit. A best case would be to have the tenant create, you know, uh, get their own credit report and give it to you. There's always a risk in that. And I've had those lawsuits as well, because they might pick and choose, it might not be a full report and so forth. But the, the, the risk that I'm talking about here is that some people don't have Social Security. And that's where discrimination comes into play. Now, there are a lot of uh, local statutes as well. So even though the fair housing is a federal... Uh, federal statute like the ADA, uh, there are some local statutes in California that may affect national origin. And you know how California is a safe harbor state. And it doesn't want people, landowners, property managers, to uh, shoo away uh, potential immigrants who may not have paperwork. So we want to accommodate all those kind of people. And then when you ask for social security, that could be discrimination against national origin. Uh, you could go to the next slide. So this is just a summary of what we talked about. Since we don't have a lot of time, I wanted to—I uh, mean, it's, it, we just talked about it, so we'll move to the next slide. Okay, uh, this is another example of discrimination. You can discriminate against fam familiar uh, status. So somebody who has kids and you say this property is not for kids, or if you say kids cannot, around, cannot run around, or you say no bicycles or skateboards, and usually kids are the ones that use bicycles and skateboards, it almost starts sound, sounding like you're discriminating against kids. If you say you know no running, making noise, and so forth. Um, again, I can't tell you how to do that. I just have to tell you to tread lightly you may, may wanna consult an attorney who is an expert in fair housing and say, okay, how do I do that? Um, there are occupancy limits as well. The typical one, the standard is uh, two tenants per room. And again, when you talk about some of these homes out there, especially in areas where are low income, we have a lot more tenants in, in units. Uh, again, even though the housing standard is one thing, discrimination is another, and you might be facing discrimination if you say, I can't rent to your family of eight people because this is a two-bedroom home. That may be a problem. You could go to the next slide. Uh, I mentioned here harassment uh, just because it's a form of discrimination. So, For example, if you have a tenant with a mental dis- disability and they're wacko, uh, you may start harassing them you if they are for example if they're hoarders and you start you try to evict them or you try to cite them or anything like that I'm not saying you need to accept hoarders I'm just saying it is a judgment call all these things I'm telling you are judgment call nobody's going to give you an Accurate assessment of what a result is going to be because there's always going to be two sides The tenant will present their side a judge is going to decide a case could go on appeal But that is something you need to think of be very careful tread lightly. I think that is the theme of this presentation thread lightly judgment call be careful be cognizant of those issues so definitely if a tenant is a hoarder and you're starting having a lot of bugs around the house or you know cockroaches and so forth. Maybe you you could say something to that tenant. So again, um, just be careful. You could go to the next slide. Okay, we just talked about that. Let's um, apparently uh, Laura wants us to talk about deposits. Okay, so this is a big deal. I can't emphasize that enough. And I'm sorry for being so. Uh, Uh, so vocal about these issues because I've had class actions about deposits. It's a little tiny thing where you just send the tenant back what they're owed, but if you don't do it exactly like the statute says, there are attorneys there. Uh, Let me clarify. There are 150,000 attorneys in California, and just do the math, so these attorneys need to be busy. And these attorneys are going to make claims. And they're going to make make claims that are uh, uh, advantageous claims. And this is one of them. Why is it such a great claim? Because if you don't comply with the statute, boom, that's it. You're at fault. And the statute allows for punitive damages. That's treble damages. And it also allows for attorney's fees so an attorney can file a claim i had one where the property manager managed 900 units and they file a class action on behalf of all the units and now they can go back four years and if you go back four years plus the years that the case is in litigation that's another couple years so figure out six years of tenants rotating um, in those 900 units so that could be i don't know thousands of tenants so you want to be careful what is the gist that you need to know about deposits? The basic is as follows: You need to uh, t- give the tenant the, the, a notice that they have a right to inspect before they move out. So you walk with the tenant to see what's wrong, and then the tenant has a, a tenant has a right to repair it. And then, if you end up repairing it, you have to send the deposit back within 21 days it is very important to send back uh, the deposit, but but attaching all the receipts of the repairs that were done. So for example, if you had a painter, attach the receipt from the painter. If you had somebody fix the windows or the screens or whatever it is, you need to attach receipts for those. If you have a handyman that's on your staff, what you need to do is you need to write in that deposit receipt that you return to the tenant, how much your handyman is making per hour and how many hours they work. The idea behind providing the receipt and the hourly rate of the handyman is so that the uh, tenant, there's not gonna be any gouging, there's not gonna be any amount on top of it that the property manager or the owner is getting. So, So Because it's a deposit, it's it, it, you're, you're holding. Is it a fiduciary? It's 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 um it's like an escrow company. So you're allowed to deduct, but it has to be very precise. If you have a receipt that, but you don't have the, the the exact amount because the vendor has not yet had a chance to go into the property, then you provide the estimate, and then once you get the full receipt, you send that to the tenant. You could go to the next slide. Okay. Um, Late fee, just quickly, it has to be part of the lease. You can't just charge late fee just because you want to. It's whatever the lease says, and it has to be the actual charges. So if the bank charges you something or maybe an interest on the money, and it has to be reasonable. It can not be something egregious like uh, the, the the amount of the rent or something like that. And, again, one thing to keep in the back of your mind is there is um, a, a – a cause of that so, so if you get sued, the whoever sues you, let's say the tenant or or a third party, they're gonna make legal claims. They can say you are negligent, or they could say if it's the landlord, you can say you acted you you uh, breach your fiduciary duty because you're a fiduciary of the landlord. If you have a relationship with them as a property manager, it, it could be a third party, and and they could say that you misrepresented something, maybe on the on the um, advertisement of the lease. So there are all these potential legal theories. The facts are going to be the facts. They're not going to change. But the people who sue are going to put them into these labels that are going to be the legal causes of action. So one cause of action that's typical is called unfair business practices. And it basically includes everything. So anything that you did in a violation of the law that was unfair, gouging, anything like that would be unfair business practices. Under that, they could get their attorney's fees. And the statute of limitation is four years. You can move to the next slide. Uh, With rental increase, uh, it's just a tidbit that um, I found that recently, you're not allowed to increase rent when there's a state of emergency. And it could be a a city where something happened, like if there was just fire in this this county or something, Uh, thought it was interesting. Again, these are things that I've learned over the years when I've had lawsuits on these issues. You could go to the next slide. Uh, bed bugs, a really fun topic. There's actually a statute that deals with a disclosure you need to give. Just look up the statute. The sta- these statutes are really, really simple to read. And if you read it, you could follow it. Um, you can't always charge the, the uh, tenant for it because uh, if the bed bugs came from a tenant next door, maybe they brought in the sofa that had all these bugs in and now their bed bug somehow got to this tenant who's now making the claim. Obviously, they're not responsible. So you really need to pin the tenant as the responsible party if you want to claim that they um, are responsible for the payment. Yeah, go. you could go to the next slide. I bring up cannabis just because it's a really big, hot topic, and uh, it's really fun. Obviously, the law is changing constantly about it. I get calls about it as well. Uh, just, I want you to be careful if you are leasing a property for the use of cannabis, of growing cannabis, just know this, that the laws, okay, let's me, let me start back. Federally, it's still a crime, which means that the property owner uh, can be sued by the federal government, and the way the federal government can pursue the property and owner based on statute, and this is a whole presentation in itself, Is by basically taking over the property they can take the property from the owner so that's a really scary thing Um, the uh, state obviously allows for cannabis so they might uh, comply with state laws but the state has been changing its laws i think in the last few years the laws have changed like three times so they change. what they change is the licensing what does it require to license and what they've done is they divided the license into the categories of if you're a grower, if you're a distributor, if you're a seller, if you're a retailer, if you're a wholesaler, the person who is renting the property, let's say it's an industrial building. You know, are they going to be a grower? Are they going to be a distributor? We don't know what they're going to be and their licensing are going to be different. So obviously you can't tell your, your um, owner, the, the property owner, if this is a, a legitimate Uh, business even though the state allows for it because you don't know if they're paying taxes you don't know what the licensing requirements are so first of all I want to tell you that you have to be really careful with cannabis because the owner could be responsible so um, now if you're talking about again I don't know what type of property managers you you are or, or may want to be so if it comes to a tenant that wants to smoke if it relates to disability Go back to what we talked about ADA. This tenant has whatever cancer and they need to smoke to relieve pain. Um, if you, I wrote here, consider a smoking free environment. I think that is acceptable because, again, in terms of accommodating the tenant, the tenant can chew on uh, pills or gummies, or I don't know what is out there, but I'm sure there are other oils, things like that, that they can do that is not smoking. So maybe you can't prevent the tenant from using cannabis, but what you can prevent them is from smoking. Um, I mentioned here things to worry about. And what I want to say is the following. Tell your owners, if, if this is a commercial cannabis lease, that there might be issues with insurance because the insurance that the owner has, okay, let's say this is a, a, a business that grows cannabis, there's a fire. This typical uh, commercial lease says that the tenant is going to be responsible and going to have to have insurance. This tenant may not be able to have insurance because uh, a lot of insurance company won't insure cannabis business because it's still illegal. Uh, the tenant might not be able to also have a bank account and pay with, uh, with checks. There's some movement in that, but again, banks are a federal institution. So they're not really allowed to uh, have bank accounts for a cannabis business. And if they do, then um, they have to report it. And a lot of tenants, obviously, they don't wanna to report to the federal government that they're in the cannabis business. So you have to be very careful. I wrote here eviction based on violation of law. This is just a tidbit um, to tell your owners. So if they're leasing to a cannabis business, they absolutely need an attorney. And the and what they need an attorney to look at is that um, the typical clause in a lease that says we can evict you if you're in violation of the law may not apply here. If all the, the, the problem here is nuisance, let's say the tenants next door are complaining about noise or about smoke or I don't know what, you know, uh, uh, toxins or something. It may not still be a violation of the law. Um, you, your your owner may want to have the ability to do inspections regarding compliance, but it's a catch-22. Actually, you could go to the next slide. It's, it's uh, basically, I wanted to mention the catch-22 is that if, you, if you're gonna do inspections, then you have to know what you're looking for. And again, you're not a lawyer, you're not a cannabis specialist, you may not wanna take that responsibility in doing inspections to make sure that they comply with the law and they're using the, the permitted use that, that allows in the lease and so forth. Um, anyway, uh, the most important clause in my mind is indemnification where the landlord will be indemnified by the tenant if there is an issue especially because if the federal government comes in and takes over the property under the forfeiture statute, there's no insurance that's going to cover for that. And then the other is the early termination. If there's really a problem, the landlord is starting to get fines for odor and loadering and things like that, they may want to terminate that lease. You could go to the next slide. Uh, justification rental, want to make sure, make sure there's nothing that forbids that and make sure that the lease uh, uh, would not allow it if you don't want the the, the renter to be able to do it uh, or if you don't mind that's fine uh, just let your landlord know that's a possibility and you can go back i mean next to my last slide and i just wanted to finish with this and again you know i told you i'm going to hit the main issues for property managers well guess what mold is a big one We still see it. We see it all the time. We see tenants who are complaining about, oh, the the property manager didn't disclose a prior event, or here's a leak and there's mold. There's attorneys out there that look for those tenants who have issues. And people in their mind think of mold as as being um, a moneymaker because they think, oh my God, I could get all all my... uh, personal property replaced because it touches everything. I could get all my medical expenses. It's awful. There are a lot of defenses to mold. If you have a mold claim, just call me. I'll help you out. Most experts out there that talk about mold are just kind of wacky and um, they're not very credible, but be careful. Again, tread lightly. This is the theme of the presentation. When you hire somebody to come in and do these um, remediations because you want to make sure that you want to hire somebody who understands what they're doing. For example, there's a mold in a certain area, and uh, somebody who comes in there has to close out the area. They then have to certify that they've done it properly. I've had many cases where a handyman goes in, they uh, spray some uh, uh, they spray some chemical on the mold, they wipe it out, and they say, boom, done. Well, the mold comes back obviously it comes back. So um, just think about that and then think about the claim just being a very big claim because now you have to pay the tenant to move out or maybe to stay at a hotel in that the claim may involve on uh, you know personal injury, property damage, not just rent. So um, I think that's the last slide, Laura, right? It is. Now it's Q&A time.
0: So we do have a, a few questions that have been typed into the Q&A box. So Renat, if you don't mind, I will go ahead and read some of those to you, and we'll wait for some others. And thank you. That was really, really informative. Um, We'll start with the first question right now. Um, Who does the ADA apply to, and specifically, someone asked, does the ADA apply to two to four unit properties?
1: Okay, so, um... first question, who does the ADA apply to? Yes. So the ADA only applies to people who provide public accommodations. That would be a retail, a service, a business, and, you know, office building, warehouses, factories, places where you expect the uh, public to go into. If you are managing a big residential um, property and there are a lot of visitors who would come to see the property. I could argue that that's a public space because uh, people can walk over and and, and into the common areas. Um, however, if you, I talked to you before about uh, the website, your website is a, a sort of a public accommodation, if you will, because the public is invited to go on your website. So your the ADA will apply to your website.
0: And how about, is, uh, does the uh, ADA apply to two to four unit properties? It does not. It do- does not. Okay. We have a lot of questions pouring in right now, so I'll get through these as I can. Um, but wait, wait, wait. I about- want to say this, Laura. Laura, okay. Laura.
1: The, <laughs> fair ha- the fair housing may apply, and, and disability is one of the things that you can't discriminate against. So even though you... Um, you might not be violating the ADA by not accommodating a disabled person. You might be violating the Fair Housing Act by not accommodating a disabled person. The Fair Housing Act requires you to only provide reasonable accommodations. Okay, I have another ADA
0: type question. I'm gonna, it just popped up. Do you need handicap parking for older pre 1978 apartments with 12 or less units? I know that's a very specific question, so I'm not sure if you have the answer to that one.
1: My, okay, so this is where I'm going to have to guesstimate because I'll have to research it. My guesstimate is yes, because if it's a, a, a parking lot that allows people to go in and out, And and, and the accommodation is very, very inexpensive and simple. All you have to do is very simple, is take one space, make it a little bit larger. That's it. And you're done. Very simple. I have
0: another type question for you. Does the fair housing apply to all types
1: of accommodations? No. So the fair housing is not applicable to fewer than five apartments if the owner occupies one of them, okay? So it won't apply to single family and so forth. Um, it doesn't apply if there's no broker involved when the property is rented. So for example, if an owner just wants to advertise something that's somewhat discriminatory, put on Craigslist, you know, am I, um, I'm leasing my unit and I don't want any kids, that fair housing won't apply to that. It doesn't apply to religious organizations simply because one of the things you can't discriminate against is, is, is religion. So obviously, if it applied to religious organizations, then they wouldn't be able to do any business. So it doesn't apply to them. It doesn't apply to private clubs. It doesn't apply to senior housing. Again, they have to comply with all the statute to, to be considered senior. But if it's a senior housing, then guess what, it's senior housing. So um, yeah, these are the main exceptions, but if it's anything more specific, I would probably have to research it.
0: Okay, I'm gonna try and lump these together because the questions are pouring in here. So I have two on leases. For a residential lease, is a 5% late fee charged, okay, can they charge a percent 5% late, 5% late fee if rent is more than
1: five days? Is that considered reasonable? So you no know,
0: five percent
1: late fee. I I don't know the answer to that because I'm not an unlawful detainer attorney, so I don't even get involved in the in the nitty gritty. I could tell you this, that there are rent control statute depending on what city you're at, and all kinds of local statute that may be applicable in addition to the uh, to the civil code. So you would have to research that issue. And like I said, the late fee has to be reasonable, and it has to be what you actually lose, if you will. Five percent to me sounds excessive because, depending what the rent amount is, because if somebody is late by two days, then what did the owner really lose in terms of cost? It ha- so you can't you can't um, top whatever the 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 actual cost is with 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 let's call it penalty. So it can be penalizing. So hopefully that answers your question.
0: Okay. I have another one. Is an early termination fee, is that legal? If you have that in the lease, can you write an
1: early termination fee in the lease? So, okay. So anything that the so the straight answer is yes, because anything that the buyer, I'm sorry, that the landlord and the tenant agree to is generally legal, unless they agree to, I don't know, how this property is a is a whorehouse or something. I mean, you can't agree to engage in some criminal activity. So if 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 the the, the parties agree that there's going to be something and it's it looks like it's a mutual agreement with some mutual, so both of them can terminate early not just a tenant, maybe also the landlord, and then the fee would go both direction and it doesn't look like a penalty, then I would guesstimate that it should be legal. So again, in all these questions, because I don't know how many questions we could get through, use common sense, you can't, okay, starting off, don't give your clients legal advice. The answer to all these questions, if it's asked of you, is gonna be, I don't know, we need to hire an attorney and ask. That would be your first answer. Your second answer is going to be, or maybe the guidance is going to be, look, it can't be punitive. So, and and that's why, for example, deposits and all those, they can't be punitive. So if it's something that doesn't look punitive, it looks like reasonable, give you an example. When you have a contract and somebody breaches it, the party that is injured has a right to compel the performance or compel what they would have gotten out of the performance as if the contract was completely performed. So they if, if a tenant leaves early, basically they're they're leaving the landlord now um, high and dry and they need to go and, and rent it. So they're going to have to clean it up. They're going to have to advertise. They're going to be downtime. Maybe now they're going to rent it for less per month. So there's going to be a, a deficit there. There's definitely we'll call, let's call them breach of the lease type um, damages. If, if, uh, if an early termination fee is, is like a liquidated damage clause, if you will, then there are rules about that. It can be too excessive. But then if the tenant pays that, they're done. The landlord can't sue them. If, so, so hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of where I'm going with this You have to look at the context of everything else that's happening. It has to be in lieu of the landlord being able to sue for damages. It can not be a penalty. It has to be an amount that's reasonable that the parties anticipate would be the the losses of either party by that early termination and so forth. Renat, just
0: to let you know, I have about 20 something questions coming through because we have, have over 100 people attending. Obviously, everyone, I'm sorry we cannot get to all of these. We will, um, I will save the questions and we can address them and send out an email with the answers, they're excellent, excellent questions. Unfortunately, I know Renat needs to get back to her mediation and I know you all need to go sell property. So we are going to write down these questions, we will get the answers, we will send them out along with the copy of today's presentation and the PowerPoint slides. So I wanna thank you all for attending, an extra special thank you to Renat, she is extremely busy and I'm so happy that she was able to pull this off while attending a mediation. So thank you, Renat, very informative presentation, and thank you all for attending. I'm very sorry we didn't get to all of your questions, but we will get the answers to you, and we will send them out. We have all of your email addresses. So again, thank you, and thank you for attending, and please um, look forward to more webinars. We are offering these every month. They are in different states, but we have another one coming up in California in April. Thank you again, and all of you have a wonderful day.